Welcome to episode three. Just a quick word before we get started. You're going to notice that the sound levels in this episode are a little bit out of whack. That's because we've got a second microphone, which is pretty exciting. And in that excitement, I managed to completely screw up the sound levels for me, which is a bit embarrassing. Anyway, we're going to iron that problem out for episode four. But uh, please stick with us in this episode. It's a pretty, pretty interesting discussion, I think. And uh, thanks for listening. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition, which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. This is a show where we talk about topics to do with psychological therapy and psychological disorders. We're interested in exploring different aspects of therapy and to share some of our experiences working as therapists. Coming up on the show today, we're going to be talking about how personal identity and a psychological disorder can be intertwined and how this can relate to symptoms in the course of an illness. We're going to be talking about schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, we're also going to finish up, as we always do, on a lighter note with our segment, Things We Came Across This Week. As usual, we will put up links to articles discussed uh, on our website, twoshrinkspod.com, and don't forget to subscribe to the show. I'm Hunter Mulcair, a psychologist who works uh, mainly with medically unwell patients, and I'm here, as usual, with Amy Donaldson. Hi. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Good. Enjoying your tea. (laughs) Amy forgot to put sugar in my tea. Uh, and I'm never going to live it down. <laughs> right. Uh, so, Amy, want to take us away? All right. So, I have an article about identity and schizophrenia. It's called Coming Back Normal, The Process of Self-Recovery in Those with Schizophrenia by Joyce Shea um, in 2009 in the Journal of the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. Uh, so, I'm thinking first that... Schizophrenia is one of those diagnoses that is often misunderstood or is portrayed as something different in the media than what it is, yeah. and often with a quite um, derogatory kind of lens to it. Yeah, um, it's sort of stereotype of the crazy man, the crazy lady. Exactly, and it's sort of assumed whenever anyone's acting unusual in the street that that must be, must be the cause. There's kind of that, that language about it. So perhaps before I launch in, it's worth of describing it a little bit um so it's a disorder where there are sort of two clusters of symptoms one that are positive symptoms so things that are on top of your average human experience so things like hallucinations um so hearing voices hearing sounds things like that smelling smells smelling smells feeling um, feeling yeah smelling smells tasting things yeah feeling like your body's really hot or cold without any external reason um or delusions so sort of beliefs about the way that the world's functioning around you uh that aren't based in reality so for example that the tv is sending you messages um or that your family have been um possessed by some sort of creature the gods talking to you those kind of things so that usually have like a like a bizarre <coughs> element to them, yeah. Or, or they're, uh, or they're really, really extreme. Yeah. Like, so we're not talking about like, oh, you know, 
my football team's the best football team and and to all contrary evidence that's yeah that's a belief that's a belief that's not a delusional belief yeah although you know well, some people <laughs> but um yeah yeah but negative symptoms and negative symptoms are the things that are sort of lacking from what the average person might experience so difficulties say with emotion or with not being able to express emotion on your face slowness of movement um or of speech schizophrenia is a cognitive disorder as well like that yeah one of the things that's probably not so well known is like sort of like a rigidity and a concreteness to the way in which individuals can think absolutely yeah so it it covers quite a few parts of uh, both a person's sense of self, their emotional regulation, their interaction with others. Um, and it's the sort of disorder that continues throughout the lifespan once once you have that disorder. Um, it sort of fluctuates at different points, but um, it's a pervasive disorder. So the study that I looked at uh, used uh, interviews to talk to people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and some of their family members about how their identity had shifted through the course of their schizophrenia. Um, And they ended up coming up with a theory of self-recovery. So uh, they found these similar patterns across um, the different participants. It was quite a small um, sample in that they had uh, 10... 10 participants um, who had schizophrenia and then four family members, but then in a qualitative world. Uh, 14. Yeah, it'd be, yeah. It'd still be a lot of work. Yeah, absolutely. And it was also part of a larger study that was looking at uh, different factors that influence community engagement for people with schizophrenia. Yeah. yeah. So the theory that they came up with had multiple phases and so probably the best way to go about it is to sort of describe the phases and how you move from one to the other. So the first one was losing the self. So um, people with schizophrenia and their family members described this pervasive feeling of loss when they were first diagnosed in the sort of acute part of their illness initially. And it's usually late teens, early 20s, isn't it? Yeah. For me it's... A little bit later. No, no, no think, earlier, yeah, women so, later. So women are sort of mid-20s, I think, mm. usually, are diagnosed. Yeah. And on average, I think men are around 18, 18 20, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, people described feeling like they'd lost uh, skills that they had before, they'd lost relationships, their independence, and that this combination of losses meant that they felt like they lost their sense of self. So um, they lost any sort of confidence in who they were and how they, how they were in the world. Uh, the second stage was that people then described a struggle for control. So to try and regain some of what they'd lost and sort of tr- struggling with themselves and with others to have control over their lives. Mm. Uh, so this could have been with things as sort of um, day-to-day mundane as showering um, and there were often things that people had previously done without any effort or thought. So just you know, making themselves a meal or showering or things like that. Yeah, and going down the shops, things like that. Exactly. When you're horribly psychotic or quite unwell. 
is a real struggle. Yeah, or people will prevent you from doing. Yeah, exactly. So lots of confusion and fear about losing those just day-to-day habits and things that we all take for granted and a struggle to try and regain that but not really having the um, ability or the skills to be able to do it. So just yeah. so quite a period of tension. That then moved into a phase with two components one which was active self-care so really taking charge of what you wanted to change and being really persistent so um, not giving up when you had difficulty showering yourself one day but just keeping on going and trying to build on those skills Um, and learning to care for themselves as a new person who was different to what they were like before their illness and which which requires this sort of acceptance doesn't it yeah absolutely which is Frequently, not something you want to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, when you feel like you've lost. Yeah, or, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you see that across lots of disorders, don't you, where, you know, people don't want to, like, because if you're accepting something, you're having to take on a label or take on a whole lot of, uh, what's the word, meanings around what it means to be a person with this problem. Absolutely. And especially with a disorder that has so much stigma attached to it as schizophrenia I think you're taking on that label is quite difficult and then also the symptoms often interfere with your ability to kind of judge what's going on around you as well so um, you know for people with delusions or hallucinations they feel completely real Um, they don't feel like they're coming from their head it feels like there's someone next to them talking or things like that so it's quite confronting to then have to acknowledge that perhaps that might not be the case yeah and 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 if you've ever spent any time on a psych ward they'll one of the common things that people with psychotic disorders will say is like um i I don't have psychosis yeah you know i don't have schizophrenia i don't have that disorder like like i genuinely believe you know like this is this is the way the world is yeah you know that kind of stuff yeah absolutely Um, So kind of hand in hand with learning to look after yourself in a new way uh, was finding a new social fit. So uh, developing new relationships or building your relationships with people around you. Um, And that included both other people with mental health problems and, uh, you know, family members or friends or people who um, you'd known previously and people without mental illnesses. So... What they emphasised was wanting a reciprocal relationship. So not one where they have always had to be cared for, but one where it was sort of they could care for one another. Yeah. So a balanced balanced relationship. So individual going along in life develops schizophrenia, mm-hmm. has these losses, loses themselves, loses their ability to navigate the world yep. or, or that's severely impaired and then you're talking about sort of this stage of recovery where they sort of negotiate sort of some kind of middle ground exactly or, yeah 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 find some way of functioning within the limits of of what's going on for them mm. yeah and so from there uh some people kept on moving forward but other people found that stage of sort of integrating into the community and with their new sense of self quite challenging. Um, and some people really wanted to sort of retrieve their old identity rather than create 
a new one. Mm. Um, and so for some people, they were able to keep on developing this new sense of self and others returned back to that sort of struggle for control. So it sort of looped around on a circuit where um, they would apply the new skills and things that they'd learned as they were trying to learn how to care for themselves in a new way, but that they still had that sense of struggle and push-pull with other people and with themselves mm. and so still felt quite stuck. Mm. So for the people who moved forward in the, the model, uh, they moved on to what the authors called checking the self out. So the idea with that was to see if their sense of self matched with other people's perceptions. So a sense of um, controlling their symptoms a bit more and seeing where their reality lined up with people around them and their perception of their abilities and their strengths lined up with people so, around them. So they, they would teach, this would be taught to them? No, this was sort of a natural process that, that people would go through. So... So they would get, say, someone that they trust and they would check in with them. Yeah, like yeah. Or they'd compare, say, oh, mum says that I'm not doing so great and that I'm still still unwell, but I feel like I've got things under control. Yeah. Sort of compare the perceptions yeah. of themselves and others. And um, a lot of the participants describe this as really challenging and um, that this was another key moment where if that perception was mismatched and, and they found it difficult to handle the struggle, but then they'd go back to that sort of struggle for control. Mm. So the loop would kind of continue again. Um, and for the people who were able to navigate it and sort of find a mid-ground between others' perception of them and their own self-perception, then they went into the final stage, which the author termed coming back normal. So the idea of recovering a sense of identity enough to be able to get through your day-to-day -day life, yeah. uh, the world feeling manageable, uh, being able to cope with the illness as it was, so acknowledging that you had an illness, but that you also had strengths and resources to deal with it. Yeah. So it's quite a complex stage of balancing all different yeah. aspects. It's also different to working with people who've had a drug and alcohol problem and then they kind of, some of them will navigate to a point where they're like, yep, I, I definitely have a problem with this stuff. These are the things that I need to do to maintain myself as a sober individual. Yeah. And for, for whatever that is. And, you know, and they will frequently, like your model, go backwards and forwards. You know, they will slip up from time yeah. to time. Like I work, you know, I've worked with individuals who have had a long course of alcoholism, will have long stretches of being sober will be doing all the things you're kind of talking about, we'll yeah. then, but then we'll then slip Then back. we'll relapse, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a parallel. Yeah, absolutely. No, but that's what I was thinking when I was reading it, that there's, uh, that, there's that aspect of sort of um, relapse or returning to a previous yeah. kind of state, but then also the same kind of thing with drug and alcohol where it's sort of, it's a cumulative thing. It doesn't mean that when you relapse, you go right back to the start. You kind of gradually build more and more skills yeah. over time so that your chances of... I think you can. I you can. It would be the proviso. It can would be, yes, definitely the proviso. Yeah. Um, the idea being that then perhaps as you try each time, you've got a few more skills, skills to hold you. 
would be the hope. In theory, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so this sort of coming back normal involved recognising yourself within an illness yeah. and then also recognising yourself beyond the illness so that you are not just your disorder. You're not Amy. Yeah. You're not schizophrenic Amy. You're yeah. Amy who has... Has schizophrenia. Yeah. And also has these other... Yeah skills this is amy she has you know she likes x y and also she's got exactly yeah Yeah. and um this phase also had some hope for the future and an integration of the self before illness and then during as well so being able to kind of um, hold those two states being able to acknowledge that yourself before the illness was different but that it was a a part of the development of the self that you are with an illness. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing that they noted was that for people with more um, severe symptoms, that it was really hard for them to be able to see themselves outside the illness, that it sort of consumed them and it felt like their entire world was within schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, they, they had trouble articulating or seeing a possibility that there could be a self outside of that diagnosis. I mean, I've not worked extensively in schizophrenia, but my understanding is that that's something as a therapist or as a worker in the field, you want to really try and pull them away from. Absolutely. If possible. Yeah. So there are a lot of programs now that have a sort of recovery focused um, approach where it's about developing all of those other skills outside the disorder. So that it sort of buffers the effects of the disorder. They've got other skills and resources to draw on um, and other reasons to sort of get up in the morning and do things that are outside of just simply taking medication and managing. Yeah. 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 Yeah, So I found it quite an interesting article and quite useful in kind of conceptualising phases of development of identity within a disorder, Mm. um, that it's not a a static or a linear process that sort of can have some loops and some bumps in the road. How would you use this model and this kind of piece of information in your work with, uh, with that population? I think um, it would be useful to find out from your client where they sat in that model, if, if it fit for them, and whether, um, whether perhaps... They were in the phase of, you know, losing their sense of self, whether they'd started to develop some skills or things like that, so that you could target the work that you were doing with them to where they were at, rather than aiming, say, for an end stage of integrating everything together when they weren't there yet, when they were sort of still struggling with day-to-day life. Yeah, and and maybe, uh, you know, getting them, you know, getting to just helping them to discuss what's going on for them and say, well, you know, people who have this disorder, these are some of the common phases that go, they go through. Absolutely. Although, I mean, my work with some of those, some individuals who've had this kind of problem, even that discussion could be uh, quite a challenge for them. Absolutely. On a cognitive level. Yeah. Um, yeah, it would really be about taking things slow and perhaps just picking up on some cues as a clinician rather than discussing a model like this. Yeah, because like, with with, yeah, with the drug and alcohol, when I used to work in drug and alcohol, you know, we had a model of like, uh, you know, you, you do a withdrawal, um, 
and then it's like a honeymoon phase and then there's like well, I can't remember all the phases but there was like one of one of the phases was the wall was yeah like, you know you know, like, and it's like a neither here nor there phase and, and then there's kind of like a longer term stuff. And each of those phases have a challenge mm. associated with it. Honeymoon phase, it's like, oh, I'm feeling really, really great. I could have a drink. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. The wall is like, you know, this is just, this is just, I'm like, I'm just, I'm bored with it. The honeymoon's worn off. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it's useful to have in your mind as a clinician and then to be able to kind of tune in to different things that might be going on. And I would also think, like, for family members. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Um, to sort of to say, look, yeah, you're, you're going to feel like a loss. Like, yeah. And, that, and then there's going to be this phase where you're negotiating backwards and forwards how, you know, how much independence can your loved one uh, handle, mm. uh, how much assistance, you know, because frequently... Uh, family members will want to do everything yeah. um, because they're very worried. That's a natural response. But sometimes that can be a bit disempowering yeah. um, for the individual. And then there's that kind of, you know, understanding the cycle. If you yeah, sort of normalises what's going on for them and that uh, they're not the only ones that have gone through this. Yeah, I mean, I find as a psychologist, like any time you give an explanatory model to someone, and it often doesn't even have to be 100% accurate. Yeah. I think psychology researchers get very... I hemmed in on, you know, we've got to make sure that the model is 100% accurate Look, and, and there's truth to that. But I think being able to say, look, this is a general model. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about your experience of it. It can be so useful in terms of help, giving someone a, a, a way of understanding what's going on. But then also that they, they can then just correct you and say, well, actually that doesn't apply. Yeah. And you go, oh, okay. Well, what does it, well, if it was different, what would it be? And they go, oh, it's this, blah, 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 blah. And then you've already got, you're already so far ahead of the game. Yeah, it gives you sort of a scaffold to be able to have that conversation yeah. and, yeah. That kind of stuff. So, I mean, I think, yeah, like not adhering too rigidly to any kind of model um, is, mm. often a, is often uh, very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So, so there you go. So the article I'm going to do, uh, talk about... Um, is called When Trauma Becomes a Key to Identity, Enhanced Integration of Trauma Memories Predicts Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder Symptoms. So this is by Bernstein and Rubin. It's from, it's an older article, 2007. It was in Applied Cognitive Psychology. So, so post-traumatic stress disorder is a disorder that occurs when you've witnessed or experienced something traumatic and has sort of main features of... Um, intrusion so either like flashbacks or preoccupation with the trauma or elements of the trauma you avoid uh, any kind of reminders of those kinds of things and you have like what we call hyper arousal so like uh, you're physiologically on alert hmm. um, sort of looking for danger around every corner that's it so like you know uh, yeah essentially like looking for danger hmm. and, and you're sort of hardwired into that as a result of the trauma. So the authors start off the article with an anecdote about coming, uh, talking to one of their students who had been involved in a horrific accident and the memory of this accident was troubling her very much and, and, and her sort of commenting that the lack of control she'd experienced during the accident was not just characteristics, characteristic of this event but had become an overarching theme of her whole life. And the authors sort of remarked or 
thought about it later and said, well, you know, is it really adaptive to make, you know, an isolated, random, highly negative event so central mm. to one's life story and, and hence their identity? And so the usual, this is, which, which I think, you know, it's like, that's a fairly logical kind of conclusion. Mm. What, what's interesting is that the usual take on trauma is that a traumatic event is so extreme that it violates the schemata of a person. And so it's hard to mentally process. And as a result, it's poorly integrated into the self-narrative of someone. And so, and, and that this causes this, the symptoms experience and drive, and essentially will also drive the treatment approach in yeah. therapy. And so these authors suggest alternatively that trauma, yes, is, is highly distinctive, has a large emotional impact, does violate the, you know, an individual's schemata, but it, because of this large emotional impact, it stays highly accessible and such is like a, serves as a reference point for the organization of all knowledge mm. and information coming in and also past and so drives expectations for the future. Um, so in non-trauma or you know, in non-negative situations or even in positive situations. Like, so, and so there's this kind of question about like, well, what they're interested in is they're, they're interested in saying, well, how, let's, let's find out how defining a, tr- a particular traumatic event is for someone mm. and does that associate with the symptoms that they experience. So they developed a scale called the cent- Centrality of Event Scale, the CES. So it measures how much of a reference point the trauma was. So some of the items on this scale, so I don't normally do this, but it, it gives you a good feel of it. It was like, you know, I, you, you would rate each of these questions. Like, you know, I feel this event has become part of my identity This event has coloured the way I think and feel about other experiences. This event was a turning point in my life. You can kind of get the flavour of what that is. Yeah. And so, you know, their theory is that positive events, so like childbirth, marriage, you know, they anchor and stabilise conceptions of ourselves. So a negative event could easily... Do the same. Do the same. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? So... And if so, then they, they could have negative effects on well-being. So it's not poor integration, as originally thought, but rather enhanced integration, and that the negative event becomes central for the individual. So too much integration of that Yeah. Event. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not super knowledgeable about the literature they're, they're talking about. I wonder whether there's a bit of semantic stuff like poor integration versus enhanced integration. Mm. I wonder about, you know, what what what's poor integration means? Um, I would say that if something has quote unquote enhanced integration dominates their life, I, I would suggest maybe that's poor integration as well. Yeah, but, yeah. But I think uh, uh, in in the sense that they're talking about poor integration was viewed as like it wasn't part of their whole life story. Sort of a lack of integration versus enhanced too much integration. Too much, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it, it certainly they have a, a very good point. So just quickly with some theory around, well, actually, it was probably, this is the, probably the more interesting part of it rather than the studies that they did. But they, they talked about three ways a memory of a stressful event can become influential in one's memory and cognitive processes ongoing. And now they talk about this in reference to trauma, but the, the studies that they do also sort of suggest, you know, the relationship exists for non-trauma, like non-trauma level negative events. Mm-hmm. So traumatic, a trauma level thing could be like being in a, you know, a horrific car accident, sexual assault, 
bank robbery, yeah. uh, witnessing physical assault on someone else, like those kinds of things. I mean, those are extreme things, but you could have, you know, like losing your job or um, becoming unwell or I don't know, a whole lot of other stuff that's probably not of trauma intensity. Yeah, um, but still has a big impact. Still has an impact. And yeah. the author suggests that these things roll, uh, influence as well. So three, three ways. First one, reference point for er- everyday influences. So whilst an uncommon event, the emotionality of this negative traumatic event makes it accessible, that leads to an overestimation of events occurring again. So a sense of serious current threat, so which is yeah. know, the defining feature of PTSD. It, and that leads to intrusions, that leads to avoidance of stimuli, that leads to high arousal, the startle reflex. Yeah. Number two, a turning point in the life story. So traumatic events generally unexpected, and if it is a sailing turning point, it'll break with frequently it'll break with cultural norms to that are typical in someone's life story. And that can create like negative emotions. So not mm. unlike the schizophrenia example, right? 18, 19, you either go and get a job or you go to university. Yeah. Uh, soon after you get married, you know, uh, settle down or you might travel the world. And, you know, there's kind of a few different ways, but there's a, a cultural expectation, cultural norms. When you're talking about loss that those individuals have, it's a, that, that life story yeah. has been violated, yeah. essentially. And, and so they're talking, and so that's what they're talking about. The same thing in this so let's say you, you know, have a horrific car accident, spend a whole lot of time in hospital for a period, you know, and then you're out of your cohort and your life revolves around recovery, physical recovery, stuff yeah. like that. You know? So this can cause a focus on life conditions relating to the trauma and you can ignore con- information contrary to, to the trauma in your life, right? Which is kind of what we're talking about with schizophrenia as well, right? Yeah, and it's sort of, um, it's one of those things that spans a lot of different disorders, really, even if you think about, um, say, the sort of beliefs that are in depression. Often that then people ignore the the positive things around them and see more of the the negative things that reinforce those beliefs. Yeah. So it's a pretty common feature to a lot of different disorders, actually. Yeah, and it's something that I... I worry about when I hear people say, oh, you know, my depression or mm. my anxiety. There's there's benefit in getting someone to accept it and, and to label it and yeah. because you can see that there's a benefit to them that will drive them to do more stuff around it. I've got depression, so I need to exercise every day. I'm stressed out at the moment. Like, you know, for, you know, times in my life, me personally, where I go through stress and I'll like amp up doing exercise because I yeah. know that that helps, yeah. right? It doesn't pay off in terms of my figure, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> maybe my Pringle habit needs to be uh, They go hand in hand. Uh, <laughs> they definitely go hand in my hand, that's for sure. Um, but, the, the, but the other side to that is that, the, you know, everything becomes defined through this prism of like, yeah. oh, my trauma, my my depression, my anxiety, um and the work that I do with cancer patients, like I have a, there's a real movement to label any person with cancer as a cancer survivor. Mm. And I really um, feel very uncomfortable about that. So, and then that's been driven by the lives, live strong, 
uh, organization which was founded by um, Lance Armstrong and yeah. testicular cancer. And, you know, there's this like this thing of like, if you get diagnosed with cancer straight away, you're quite a quite a cancer survivor. Right. And, you know, and, I, and I really struggle with that because then you, there, there's this label, there's benefits to that, but there's this label, which is like everything about your life is now, I am this person who's had this thing and, you know, is, is that really that healthy? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it becomes a central, central point. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, so, so if you listen to this and you go, uh, I mean, what I'm always, I'm always trying to get people to stand in the middle of the seesaw. Like, yeah. it's easy to stand on one end of the seesaw than the other end of the seesaw. So, and it's easier to sit on one end of the seesaw than, the, and then to, than to stand in the middle. Yeah. But that's actually where we need to do psychologically. That's obviously a challenge. Anyway, so back to what we're talking about, you know, if it's a turning point in your life story, you know, um, and this becomes dominating, then, then everything about your life can become that and, then, and it can shut off positive things. Yeah. Or even just non-negative things hmm. in your life, right? So, um, and the third area they talk about is like it can, can become a central component of a person, personal identity. So, they talk about composition of life stories relates to self-understanding and our identity, so which is sort of along the lines of narrative therapy. And essentially, our, our, our identity is like a story. It takes the form of a story. Humans kind of do that. Right? Yeah. Sort of innately, we create yes, this, stories. Yeah, this is this, and and they have explanatory power, mm. and um, and helping therapeutically. If you help someone change their story, that can often lead to uh, like really, really great benefits. Like you know, I've worked many with many individuals. I say, oh, you know, this this experience was just so awful. It was so terrible. And I said, well, you know, look, that is true. I don't want to take it away, but. You know, I hear a story of an individual who survived. How did you do that? Yeah. What did you do? How, how did you keep going even though it was all awful? Because mm. you're here today. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you, you must have done something, you know, and even to, you know, and you can even sort of point out things like saying, well, you know, you come to therapy every week. Yeah. You know, that's impressive. Lots of people don't. Mm. How do you do that? You know, so it's really, really interesting. You kind of become aggressively. Po- oh, I become aggressively positive. Yeah, you're good at that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so trauma can become a part of this this life story. It can make it harder to relate to others who haven't taken on that role of a of a trauma victim, or you can apply this to depression or, or, yeah. or schizophrenia or something like that. And so, when you haven't taken on that role, then you could essentially find yourself more comfortable hanging out with other people who fit in with that role of a trauma victim, that mm. kind of stuff, um, and make it harder to integrate with people who haven't had that experience, Yeah. right? And so there's social isolation and stigmatisation. So, again, this, kind of, you know, this double-edged sword of like going to a support group can be really, really great for people who've experienced a particular kind of problem. Yeah. But also... But like the, the the downside of that is that you can someone can then often take on board this this whole identity around that 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 may actually be detrimental to them. Yeah. Um, so it's difficult. Uh, I would not want to wager in <laughs> one way or the other with anyone. So I mean, the usual thing I say to people is like, you need to you need to go and experiment and see whether it works for you or it doesn't. Um, 
So they also talk about sort of it becomes a central component of personal identity, also to, that like that it can result in stable global internal attributions about themselves. So if you know anything about attribution theory, if something that's global, stable, and internal, that can that can lead to sort of depressive kinds of uh, cognitions and things like that. Whereas as soon as you make it sort of a unstable, external opposite of global, I can't remember what that is. Um, so event. People who don't know about that theory. Yep. So you're talking about things that the global bit that it applies to everything, yep. every situation, so, so, yeah. every thought, every yeah. so, I mean, I facet. Think, so, so yeah, to give yeah to give an example, like yep. so say if we lost, you know, if you lose your job, yeah, and and you you attribute that to the stable global internal factors. So mm. uh, I'm. You know, I'm stupid. Yeah. Um, that can never change. I've you know, always been stupid. I've always been stupid. I've always failed at these jobs. Yeah. Then you, like, it's a hop, step and a jump to feeling depressed and hopeless. Yeah, because there's no out. There's, there's no, out. no, yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you, uh, if you, like, well, the reason I got fired from that job is because my boss is awful and the organisation itself is actually run really poorly. And, you know, I was going through a difficult time as well and maybe I wasn't you know, up to speed, yeah. um, you can already sort of see how that would then change the emotional tone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I cut across your explanation. Sorry. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I mean, and so when you have these attribution, pattern of attributions, you know, that's known to be related to PTSD. Depression. So, I mean, so that's, that's their theory. Um, they, in this article, they present two studies. So with these studies, they got a sample of uh, psychology students. They're, it's a Danish study, so Danish psychology psychology majors. And so they weren't, uh, they didn't go out looking for a specific group of people who had trauma or something. But of course, you know, statistically, uh, in any sample of the general population, this could be proportionally, will have had some kind of trauma. Yeah. So... And so what they did is they, in study one, they wanted to see whether the CES scale, the centri- central centrality of event scale, mm-hmm. uh, and whether that predicted PTSD in the, um, whilst controlling for this, this sort of dissociative experiences, state trait anxiety, sort of self-absorption measures and depression. So the, the, the long and short of it is that Yes, that's what they found. Yeah. Um, Study two, they clarified the study one results by looking at the stressful, whether the stressful event in question actually met, would have met criteria for PTSD. So they got them to ask. So this was with DSM-4, which is the older criteria. So that, but they said, you know, the event that you're referring to in the CES scale, um, did it, was it, an event that involved actual threat and death, serious injury, uh, or threat to physical integrity of themselves or others, which is the A1 criteria. And did you respond with intense fear, helplessness, or horror, mm-hmm. which was the old... The of, old criteria. Yeah. I actually think that criteria is really good. Hmm. I'm a bit doubtful about the... The new one. The new one. But that's another podcast. <laughs> um, so, I mean, they had similar design. They had 442 psychology majors... Um, the results, 31%, uh, 38% had a, a uh, PTSD level event, 
50% had satisfied uh, the responding to whatever event it was with intense fear, helplessness or horror, and 27% had satisfied both criteria. Yeah. They found, they found that the symptoms and the centrality of event scale was higher in those with PTSD level experiences. Yeah. Versus those who did not, which, which makes sense. Makes sense. But they also found that the association of the correlation um, between PTSD symptoms and how central this event was to this person, mm. um, the, the correlation for both groups was almost identical. Interesting. So like it was, the R was 0.32 in one and 0.34 in the other. So yeah. like no difference essentially. So uh, I, My mind immediately jumps to sort of the um, – neurobiological kind of perspective of of trauma where that would make sense in that um it's about the neurophysiological response that you develop to a traumatic event and how that plays out and impacts your development and things in a subconscious level that is related to those symptoms rather than how you cognitively view that event Yeah, so it's more about um, that a traumatic event will change your level of arousal, for example. So how whether you um, are sort of hyper aware of things and quite jumpy and startled or whether your your arousal actually drops and you're kind of oblivious to things around you and you tend to sort of dissociate or um, pass out or things like that so it influences your arousal it also um, influences the size and functioning of areas of your brain that um, contribute to memory and so you might not have a strong memory of the event or it might be a bit patchy Um, it influences things like your stress hormone stuff like that so all of these processes that kind of happen subconsciously um, and that aren't automatically yeah absolutely that are all based on the idea that our brains are geared towards maximizing survival yeah so it's not something that you can control in the moment um yeah and then that becomes persistent yeah so and then the the cognitive overlay kind of kind of comes later so it makes makes sense of the world exactly and for a lot of people they haven't reach the point where the cognitive part has come in so everything to do with the trauma is kind of being processed in that um, automatic physiological way they haven't been able to apply language or cognitive elements to it yeah i mean it's yeah it's interesting Mm. it's interesting when you get someone to, to think about like are they in this phase of you know are they still just kind of acting and then there's education around that mm. and then there's other ones where they will have come out of that acting bit or go in and out of the acting bit and but will still be but will have this cognitive overlay where which is where the global stable attribute absolutely to come in which is that you know um you know i'm defective there must be something wrong with me you know uh, this is shameful that this thing happened mm. to me um you know, why didn't I stop? Yeah. The thing. It's a very, very particularly sexual assault. Absolutely. You know, and so one of your roles as a therapist will actually be to educate an individual around actually just the function of the brain that it maximizes survival. Mm. One of the things that I will talk to my patients about is just the role of the fight, flight, and freeze response. Absolutely. And, and so in a stressful event, you can, your body courses with adrenaline. 
and you, it helps you either to run away, to fight, or to freeze. And freeze is the the one that really perplexes people. So people say, mm. I, I didn't do anything. Yeah. I didn't do anything. Why didn't I do anything? And then, and then what happens is our brains are meaning making machines, mm-hmm. and then they go, I didn't do anything. There must be something wrong with me. Yeah. I'm no good. Yeah. You know, and so what's really really interesting is to then is is you have to to correct correct that yeah. you actually have to know a lot about what actually happened in the moment. Yeah. Which is obviously unpleasant to talk about for people, um, but. And then when you can use that information, you can then correct the record. Say, so, well, actually, you, you're, you, you know, in this situation, maybe your body took took the control away from you, and to keep you alive. Yeah. Right. So this idea, like, um, and I witnessed a fight when I was working at a methadone clinic, and um, I just stood still, like I was a new staff member. I think I'd been there like two or three weeks. Yeah. And there's all these other staff around, and they kind of knew what to do. And I just stood still. And I remember sort of, and I, it wasn't anything, like I, I don't recall making a decision to do that. No. And um, and that's the thing with that reflex, that it is very um, biological. So from a therapy perspective, you need to educate someone on, on like the biology of trauma, the psychobiology of trauma, and then and then use that as a, to leverage off and say, well, the, the cognitions that you have about this event, maybe they're not correct maybe mm. actually you did the thing that you needed to do to survive yeah um because you're here yeah and, and and then you can do all that fun um sensory and physiological stuff with people which again is probably an entirely different podcast yeah, but to help it. with all of their automatic kind of responses usually i just try and get send them to the to the gym <laughs> anyway <laughs> uh so i mean so and, and um what was interesting about this study is that they plotted the data from both both the studies they showed like a large linear effect of the centrality of event scale on trauma symptoms it's quite, okay those nice pretty graphs so hmm. they conclude that these results conflict with previous work that trauma events are not poorly integrated and it tends to form a cognitive reference point for organization of other memories generating expectations for the future Hmm. I think, I mean, Interesting. I, I think that that, I mean, that that fits for my for the experience. You know, the trauma violates your expectations around the world, and, and that enhances memory for this incongruent uh, event. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. So, and lead to new formation about the world as a result or yourself. So, hmm. um, yeah, and like I said before, doesn't doesn't just hold for PTSD level events, but also for less events. So it's relevant to everyone. Uh, how much an event, a negative event is rehearsed in thoughts and conversations is likely to influence how central this event subsequently becomes. Yeah. Degree. So, you know, there's that, you know, you want someone to be able to recover and to talk about their event. Yeah. And, but then also a predominant focus on that in therapy could actually be counterproductive. And yeah. I think many therapists actually uh, may do counterproductive work because they will focus on that to the exclusion of, hey, so Hunter, are you? what's good in your life at the moment? Yeah. What is it that you're doing? What, what are the other areas of your life aside from this event? Those kinds of things and like building up a, what's it, life complexity. Absolutely. And there certainly is... Um... Uh, in my experience, I've worked with a lot of kids who have 
uh, I guess, developed that thing of telling everyone lots of details about their trauma as soon as they meet them. So, for example, they'll arrive at a new school and they'll introduce themselves. A lot of the refugee kids I worked with would do this because it was so forefront to their mind. They'd introduce themselves and then go and say, then this happened and then this happened and they tell quite graphic details. And it's not a good way to make friends. No, no, the other children did not understand. <laughs> um, but I think it's that thing of that for them that was absolutely at the forefront of everything that yeah. they were experiencing and they had a real need to get it out, but that it was coming out so much that it was getting in the way of the other parts of Yeah, and so I mean, you know, and so my mind jumps to like social skills training. Like yeah. it's kind of like so you do. What happens when you meet other people? Mm. Do you engage with them? Do you not? Do you tell them? Do you not? Because I mean, the argument could be said is like if someone never tells anyone anything yeah. about it, exactly, that's also harmful. So, yeah. so come on, just like I, I always say, we're never happy. No, right? so if, if someone is doing one thing, we, we want to do something else. We want them to do. <laughs> we want them to do it less, and they're doing it too little. We want them to yeah. do it more. That kind yeah. of thing. So, but yeah, I think with those kids, you know, often they didn't feel heard otherwise so providing an opportunity where they felt heard to tell their story even just once then reduce that need to kind of tell everyone it was sort of like okay let's talk about it and let's figure out how it fits in with you and then you can go out and be a kid yeah i mean and i think i think about cancer you know through a trauma framework frequently Mm. i think it's there's there's strong parallels um and, you know, having someone who, you know, two years, three years down the track from a cancer diagnosis and they're still all about cancer. Yeah. You know, you wonder about that and you wonder about, you know, is that healthy for that individual versus someone who it's one of many aspects of their life versus, again, someone who doesn't talk about it at all. Yeah. And I've certainly had patients who are several years down the track who have only ever told um yeah close family members yeah and i mean that's their right they can do what they want um but in terms of psychological health you start to like as a therapist when i hear that from a patient i start to wonder about well there's clearly they're not comfortable with that this and in in uh reference to this kind of theory that we've been talking about it's maybe this is taking an oversized yeah role in their life and that's causing the problem. Yeah, you want that mid-ground. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's take a break. And yeah. when we come back, we will do things we came across this week. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Thanks for tuning in to hear us talk about psychology. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe to the pod in your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episode. Also, please rate the show or even leave us a written review on iTunes. The more that people do, the more that the show will rise in the ratings, meaning that more people will be able to see and find the show. We are also interested in hearing from you. If you have any suggestions for topics for the show, or if you have some general feedback, you can email us on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. And don't forget to have a quick look at our website, creatively titled twoshrinkspod.com. It's where we post links to articles discussed, as well as some other bits and pieces you might find interesting. And a quick shout out to James Grimm, who did the theme for the show. We love it. Thanks for listening. Now, back to the show. 
All right, and we're back. So for this last segment, we're going to look at um, some things we've come across this week that, that caught our eye. Who should go first? You can go first. I can go first? I was, I was, I was talking. Your turn. All right. <laughs> so the article I found was called Amputee Envy by Sabine Mueller. So there's a disorder where people feel like a, a limb or a or part of them doesn't fit with with them, with their sense of their body, with who they are. And so they often want to have that limb amputated. And right. yeah, it's really unusual and for for some people they will, you know, either request surgery or will try and harm their limb so that then that needs to it needs to be operated on. Um, because of course for the medical profession there's a whole lot of ethical issues with removing a limb that's just, just a few just a few that's perfectly functional could so you, could you imagine being a psychologist and sort of say sending that person off to a to, to the to a surgeon, to a saying, surgeon. could you just lop off um, this person's fingers for me or yeah something? it'd be really helpful yeah it's it's quite quite unusual and uh so this article kind of reviewed uh the disorder and also reviewed some um hypotheses about why why it might happen. So it's something that has been reported on since about the 1800s. And really? Yeah, yeah. And made sense of in different ways, depending on the sort of um, psychological flavour of the month, I guess. Or the, the framework. Does there, is there like any kind of estimate, estimation of how frequent it frequently disappears? No, the only um, number that I found in this article was that they said several thousands of people worldwide which not, is not a quantifier, that's, it's very small, but not sure how many. Um, and also because the, the data relies on people actually seeking out to have the limb removed or seeking out assistance. Yeah. So like I work in hospital, right? And so frequently, one of the things that frequently happens in hospital as a hospital-based psychologist is that the medical team will go, look, um, I know you cover the oncology clinic, but we've come across, I've come across this person in this other clinic yeah. with problem X. I don't know what to do with them. Or, you know, can you... See them. Can, can you yeah. help? Like, what do you think? And you chat to them, you're like, yeah, look, just send them to me. And yeah. you can figure out what's going on for them. But yeah, that would strike me as the kind of the... You, you might be chatting to the surgeon and end up with a referral. Absolutely. Yeah, because it... It seems quite unusual. Yeah. So the the current, I guess where it got to was that the, the current thought about why it happens is that there's a mismatch between the person's anatomy and with their neurological um, map of their body. So we all have a kind of um, neurological understanding of the different parts of our body and where it is in space. And that perhaps for these people, there's some sort of damage to the areas that... Um, Map. You know, map this, yep. And is so, cumunculus? Is that right? It's one part of it, yeah. yeah. So they feel like it's not actually part of part of their body. But yeah, I just thought that's really unusual, interesting. I, I, I came across that years ago when I was doing some research on transgendered health. Yeah. As I was working for as a research assistant on a project. Yeah, and, and reading, and there was a sort of parallel between, because I was looking at gender reassignment surgery mm. and, so, and this was a the article to reference 
amputee MV and as a as a com- comparable kind of scenario in that an individual uh, believes that there's something wrong in their body. Yeah. In this case, in transgender stuff, which is that no, they're in the they've got the wrong gender, um, and and then so it was interesting because in those cases, you know, uh, gender reassignment surgery or sex reassignment surgery, depending on nomenclature, mm. um, is viewed as you know okay, far more acceptable than. I mean, it's still challenging for society, yeah. for sure. But yeah, but it's it's like, interesting. And there's, I, I, and I seem to remember reading something where like someone had, had their like their knee, their their, their lower leg amputated, mm. and they felt really great afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, and I guess what interests me as well was that the the lengths that people will go to try and prompt surgery when they're not able to have it as well. So they gave a few case studies of of um, sort of damage that people had done, so that they knew that it was enough to then. So sort of, I guess, self-harming to be able to have that part removed. Wow. Yeah, so really interesting. Well, um, what did you come across? So I came across uh, an article that's fascinating, well, I found fascinating. So it's called Policing and Psychopathology. Oh, so Policing and Psychopathy, hmm. the case of Robert Philip Hansen. This is in the Journal of Forensic Psychology Practice in 2007. So... It discusses the case of Robert P. Hansen. So he, if you don't know who he was, they made a movie about him. Um, I also read a book about it. Mm. Um, the movie's called Breach. It stars Chris Cooper mm. and Ryan Philippe. So Robert Hansen was an FBI agent who conducted espionage against the United States, providing a high level of classified information to the Soviets um, and Russians, later Russians, um, for over 20 years, he it's fascinating because he's considered to have caused the, this single individual yeah. the, some of the, the most damage to the United States um, uh, it, it, out of anyone in espionage. Wow. So he's once the extent of his crimes are fully revealed, hence, hence uh, this is a quote, uh, his espionage was considered by the government to be the most damaging to national security in the United States history. Indeed, the country itself had been profoundly and pecuniously violated. That's a direct quote. Wow. So this this article details the uh, some of what he did. Yeah. And then also details his life history um, and then uses uh, the theoretical model of uh psychopath or psychopathy yep. to help explain and understand his behavior so it's a theoretical okay, yeah. model so so psychologists were always after a theory to explain why yeah right so if you've got a theory the benefit of the theory is you can then test that theory and work out whether it's true or not yep. right and where, where does that theory work whether it doesn't right and so it's really really interesting um i mean i grew up on spy novels so it's but it's this is a, a real interesting so just to give you an idea, he, he, as his spying grew more intrepid, he divulged virtually any type of classified data available to him. For instance, he provided the Soviets with the complete program by which the United States planned to ensure the survival of the president and the government in the event of nuclear war. 
Wow. So so we're talking big. We like we're not talking about like kind of like a diagram of an aeroplane. No, talking we're talking about, like, about whole filing cabinet. <laughs> we're talking about yeah. how do we keep the president and vice president of the United States alive? Yeah. During a nuclear attack, like that's pretty big deal. He sold a Soviet's a highly classified computer program used by the intelligence community to track and monitor global criminal and terrorist activities, for which he received $100,000 and personal praise from the head of the KGB. That's nice. So, and that, so they integrate the concepts of psychopath- psychopathy and his history, and, uh, and that's quite interesting. Um, his, his actions led to the deaths of at least two double agents working hmm. for the United States who were... Um, uh, summoned back to Russia under false pretenses and then executed. Right. Um, so, and then they sort of talk about, you know, the, the usual motives, the usual motives for espionage, so greed, ideology and revenge don't, are not sufficient to explain the deceptions of this uh, individual engaging at work at home in a church. So he also had this uh, sort of this sexual perversion side, which you can read about if you want to. Um, and it's all all this stuff about, him taking pride in knowing that he's this puppet master, you right. know, controlling and manipulating yeah. people, which is sort of the key feature of psychopathy. Yeah, and then also this kind of desire to um, uh, get uh, get approval. Yeah, that kind of thing, and to show off. Yeah, to other people. So you know the Soviets and that stuff like that, and and he was. You know, he was bored at work and found the life of international espionage both exciting and exhilarating. And so he regarded the FBI as a corrupt father figure. Fascinating. Yeah, and, you know, turned to the Soviets to validate validate his intelligence and self-importance in the same way that he turned to his friend to confirm his masculinity and sexual prowess. Um, Yeah, so really, really, really interesting uh, kind of stuff. Um, and then they talk about, right, right at the end, they talk about, you know, uh, that there's not much literature on, on police corruption and psychopathy by yep. police yep. or people in authority. And then they talk about um, maybe you could do some pre-employment screening with like a, a neo-PI, which yep. is a personality inventory. And so this guy, this guy started as a police officer and yeah. then sort of moved across the FBI and then worked his way. It was obviously very intelligent. And so they're sort of saying, you know, if they, perhaps if they'd screened him back then. Would have saved a bit of saved a bit of stuff. So, um, and, and then they kind of uh, comment that, you know, well, you know, that um, the success of bringing psychology to policing context is determined by how open the police are to it. So absolutely. You can imagine yeah. that that would be fairly difficult. Challenging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's my topic. Nice. Well, that's all we've got time for today on uh, Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, please listen in again next week. If you're interested in the articles we uh, talked about today, we'll put links up on our website, twoshrinkspod.com. Thanks. See you next time. See you next time. But as we try to widen and make more consistent our description of what we see, as it gets wider and wider and we see a greater range of phenomena, the explanations become what we call wars instead of simple explanations. Do you put sugar in? No. Do you have, oh, you have sugar, don't you? <laughs> I forgot. You need sugar. I've got, I've got cake.
but you're not going to enjoy it, are you? You're going to need sugar. You're going to complain about the sugar. <laughs> no, no, I'll just pile it away for you to get me later on. 